1: Our first scripture reading comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. Listen for and hear the word of God. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, as for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the clouds. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember um, my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Thank you, Isaac. Our second scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. Continue to listen for God's word. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God.
2: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. A few years ago, I had the great fortune to join with a group of pastors from here in Atlanta on an excursion to the Holy Land. It was a gift from the Cousins Foundation's Macedonia Ministry Program. If you've not been to the Holy Land, I suggest you put it on your bucket list. Anyway, I want to start with the end. After 10 days of seeing all these places that I had been reading about in Sunday school my whole life, it was time to head home, and that journey started in Tel Aviv, where we boarded the first leg of our trip, a Lufthansa flight headed to Frankfurt. I just happened to be seated next to a stranger. He was about my age, a good deal thinner, Um, He had on stylish clothes and chunky black-framed glasses, and so I guessed he was European. I nodded politely at him, and he nodded back. There are certain protocols you must maintain when you're going to share an armrest with someone for five or more hours, but we didn't speak. Shortly, however, into the journey, the Lufthansa flight crew came back to take our drink orders, and the woman who was assigned to our row addressed me first in German, which I don't speak, to which I said, I'm so sorry, do you speak English? And she said, well, of course. She said, would you care for coffee or juice? And so I took some coffee and as soon as she walked away, the man who was sitting right next to me turned and said, oh, you're an American. Where are you from? Atlanta, how about you? And I soon discovered that when he thought I was a German, he didn't say one word. I guess he didn't speak German either. But once he found out I was an American, he wanted to try out his English, which was excellent. And it turns out he was a real chatty Cathy at that. He said, I live in Jerusalem. I said, oh, we were just there. Was this a business trip or a pleasure? And so I explained the nature of our trip, a pilgrimage of sorts. And he said he hoped we'd found his country hospitable. He'd ask about our trip and where we'd been. And then he asked about Atlanta. He said he remembered watching the Olympics, but he'd never been here. And as all strangers inevitably do, we finally got around to talking about the weather. I mentioned that one of our cab drivers had mentioned to us that they had been suffering a drought as of late. He said, well, it's not so much a drought as it's unfortunate timing. January was our wettest month on record, but then the rain stopped and February and March were much drier than normal. He said, we're on track to receive our normal 500 to 550 milliliters of rainfall this year, but the soil moisture is quite low. And then he asked me how much it rains in Atlanta. Now, the only reason I have an answer to this is when I was a child, my father told me that in the southeastern United States, we average roughly an inch a week but I knew that inches wouldn't mean anything to an Israeli, so I did a quick conversion in my head, and I could do that thanks to helping my own elementary school children at the time do their math homework. I know that there are roughly 2.5 centimeters to an inch, and so to simplify 52 weeks in a year down to 50 times uh, 2.5, well, that equals 125, and so that's what I said, 125 centimeters, and he said, ooh, I'm surprised it's so dry there, and I panicked. I realized my math must be off. We preachers aren't exactly uh, known for our math skills. Any idiot could look and see that Atlanta is way wetter than Jerusalem. And then I caught it. He had said millimeters, whereas I had said centimeters. When I got home, I, I Googled the true amount, and it's 132.8. So I was within the ballpark. I pointed that out as I was talking to him. I said centimeters, not millimeters. And he, his eyes got real big, and he said, wow, that's a lot of rain it must be lush where you live. What crops do they grow in Atlanta? Crops in Atlanta? What do you say to that, cars? I told him, well, I always plant tomatoes in my backyard but I don't have much luck because I have so many trees and there's shade. And then I told him about Pat Conroy's observation that Atlanta is a city that was built in a forest. I did, however, mention our famous peaches and of course apples and soybeans and peanuts and cotton that are grown elsewhere in the state. But as we were talking, I realized I was quite out of my element. I don't often talk about farming. I flash back to my childhood when I would get a haircut uh, at Mr. Self's Barbershop in Decatur, Alabama, where the local cotton farmers used to hang out. And because their lives were so inextricably tied to the land and the weather, that seems to be all they ever talked about. Well, that in Alabama football. But as a modern city dweller, I'm not tied to the land. Uh, You ask my children where their fruit for breakfast comes from, and they'll probably tell you the grocery. But the guy on the plane was interested in what we grow in Georgia. And he also knew the exact amount of rainfall that had been aberrant in that year. And so I asked, well, you seem to know a lot about agriculture, are you involved in it? And he said, no, I'm a chemical engineer. And then he said, but every Israeli knows exactly how much rain we've had and how our crops are growing. Without normal rains and the careful management of our water resources, we cannot feed ourselves and our nation won't survive. Well, that is true of Israelis now. And it was true of them in the first century when the land they occupied was known as Judea. The Bible describes the land of Israel as a land flowing with milk and honey but it's not exactly Eden. God's people could live there only with the industrious application of farming ingenuity. Which brings us to our scripture lesson this morning. Jesus liked using examples from nature, pointing out fig trees and wheat grains and weeds and flowers of the field and swallows flying through the air and the like. As he and his disciples traveled along, it was a way for him to help his disciples grasp the qualities and intangible characteristics of God's kingdom. So it makes perfect sense that when Jesus was ready to start his earthly ministry, he would start it with some powerful symbolism as well. Well, here's what Mark tells us he did. He left his home in the north, in Nazareth, and he went to the Jordan, where he met up with his cousin John to be baptized. And in the previous verses, Mark tells us that John himself had been living in the wilderness, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. And in the next few verses, Mark tells us that Jesus himself is going to the wilderness. And so that gives us a clue as to where this morning's story took place. Now, today, there are two spots that purport to be the baptismal site of Jesus. One is controlled by Israel. The other one is controlled by Jordan. But I'll let you in on a little secret. The odds that either of these spots are the exact place where John and Jesus met at the Jordan are pretty slim but I will give them credit. They both got one thing right. Both of these spots are south of the Sea of Galilee. And I'll tell you why I believe this is to be the case, because the word that our Bible translates as wilderness is eremos, And wilderness is one way to translate that. But the problem with the English word wilderness is we have so many different kinds of wildernesses. Think of Alaska or maybe um, a rainforest in like Brazil. Those are wildernesses too, but for Mark and for the inhabitants of Judea, what they thought of when they heard the word "eremos" was desert. It's non-arable land. And the Jordan River that Jesus chose as the place to begin his ministry, well, it starts off as four springs in the foothills of Mount Harmon, which is to the north. It's actually over the border in Lebanon. And those springs send out four small rivers that cut through the rolling hillsides and join together a few miles downstream to form the course of the river that's so famous from our Bible. I have to confess, I grew up on the banks of the Tennessee River. And that's where we used to swim. And the riverbanks, thanks to Lake Wheeler, are well over a mile apart. And so when I finally laid eyes on the river where Jesus was baptized, I was underwhelmed. Now I said the river started as springs, but now we have a better handle on the hydrology and from whence those springs come. The real source of the Jordan is rainfall and snowpack that's on and around Mount Har- Harmon. That peak, it's tall enough, it's 9,232 feet. It's high enough that it interrupts the humid air that's blowing in off of the Mediterranean and it uplifts it, and as it goes up, it cools, and as it cools, precipitation falls out of it and down to the earth, and then it enters an aquifer that feeds those springs that form the Jordan. The word Jordan in Hebrew means the descender or to go down, because that's exactly what this river does after it bursts forth from the high foothills in the north. It passes southward and downward, dropping in elevation as it passes through the countryside. By the time it reaches the Sea of Galilee, the river is 700 feet below sea level, meaning that it drops over 1,800 feet in the course of 25 miles. And then it exits that body and heads towards the Dead Sea 100 miles further south and another 700 feet lower. But now agricultural and municipal uses have completely exhausted the water supply and the river just sort of peters out somewhere in the desert east of Jerusalem. But even still, Then, as now, the river is quite literally the lifeblood of the land of Israel, but as it flows southward, it moves increasingly through more and more arid terrain. On my pilgrimage, our group visited a waterfall near the source of the Jordan. It falls into a ravine, and at the bottom of the ravine was a forest. It was trees and lush bushes, and Harry, who was a pastor in Noonan at the time, he said, I swear, if I didn't know any better, I'd think I was somewhere in North Carolina. But you'd never make that comparison with the other end of the river. Only 150 miles away, it's more akin to Death Valley. And it's near that end of the river that I believe that Jesus was baptized. More to emphasize the life-giving and life-sustaining qualities of water in comparison to the desert around it. Baptism will become a sign and a seal of the promise of the life of faith We baptize infants and people new to the faith and in that we make a promise of life everlasting. Mark then tells us the next thing to happen. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. Now I suspect that every Jewish listener or reader of Mark's gospel would have picked up on the symbolism here. Where else have the heavens opened and doves? become symbols of good news. And just in case you missed it, Jesus then goes into the desert for 40 days. Of course, hearkening back to the story in Genesis of Noah and his ark. There's this really interesting juxtaposition here between water coming from the heavens as destroyer, and yet water coming from the heavens as life. Too much water versus too little. Doves telling Noah of the end of God's wrath, and a dove telling Jesus of God's satisfaction, the end of Noah's ordeal, and the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. There's another important theological link as well. One way of dividing the biblical narrative is to look at the covenants that God made with various groups of humans throughout history up until their completion with the new covenant, the one that was predicted by the prophet Jeremiah and fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And one of those ancient covenants was the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Looking at God's promise to relent from destroying humanity to God's promise to give us life eternal, well, that's the fulfillment of Jesus' earthly ministry. You see, these are symbols that are all around us but you have to pay attention. You have to be as observant as people who live on the edge of desert are about their weather. Like the sacrament that we're about to celebrate together, unfortunately, virtually thanks to the pandemic. But Jesus took common foods of bread and wine and used them to represent his body and his blood. Yes, the wheat and the grapes come from the natural world, but in order to be harvested, they must be cultivated. Bread and wine must be produced through human actions of milling and baking or crushing and straining. These are symbols that illustrate that yes, God provides, but God also wants us to be participants in recreation, not merely recipients. For those of us who have picked up the devotional book that our faith formation department has suggested that groups and individuals use in our church for this personal 40 days of our Lenten journey, Lent in Plain Sight, a devotion through 10 objects by Jill Duffield, you'll see examples of how God communicates through ordinary objects if you pay attention. One last parting observation about this morning's lesson. When Jesus left the crowds at the bank of the Jordan and left the inhabited, civilized portion of his homeland for the wilds, it would seem that he was completely alone. But Mark tells us he wasn't. The animals were with him and the angels attended to him. Then, as now, wilderness or desert was a symbol of being cut off from humanity. And as we've continued our time in this pandemic, one of my greatest fears has been for the health and well being for those persons who have had to isolate, those for whom loneliness is the greatest cross to bear. It's been tough. It's been almost a year, but we're not out of the woods yet. The temptation is there for us to let down our guard. We've realistically got several more months until we can do the things we love, like go to restaurants and coffee shops or see a movie and then deconstruct it over a bowl of ice cream with our friends or extended family. But in this time of continued isolation and social distancing, we need to remember that God is always with us and will give us the strength to persevere, just as God's Spirit gave the strength to our Lord Jesus. Pay attention, and you will see God's presence all around you. Amen.
0: Good morning, please join me in the call to worship. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. God leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble God's way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his decrees. Let us worship God.